0: Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out! Doo, 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 doo,
1: doo, doo, doo. Book bus, Harper
2: book
0: bus. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest podcast. Welcome back. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Sydney Rogers, senior editor at Harper One who recently was the editor for Viola Davis's Finding Me. So, I mean, we could talk about that all day, but I'm very excited to have Sydney here. Hi, Sydney. Hi. Hi. Um, And you brought a really great author to talk to today. So I'm gonna hand it off to you. Great. Thank you so much, Lainey. Hello. I have the distinct pleasure today of introducing
2: Mia Mercado. She is the morning blogger at New York Magazine's The Cut and has had her writing published in the New Yorker, the New York Times, Bustle, and really everywhere. She's also a published author. Her first essay collection was called Weird But Normal and went on sale in 2020. And now she is back with book two. A collection of personal essays called She's Nice Though, Essays on Being Bad at Being Good which was just selected, I'm not sure if I've told you this, Mia, as one of Publishers Weekly's summer reads. Yay! Yay! It goes (laughs) on sale um, August 30th, and thanks for being here, Mia. Yeah,
1: I'm excited to talk. Amazing.
2: Um, So She's Nice, though, kicks off with you debating what you call the Asian Apology Tour of 2020, which seemed to me to inform all of the questions that you go on to wrestle with in this book. Tell me about what you were seeing in your DMs in 2020 and why that made you start to question our instincts and intentions behind goodness and niceness.
1: Yeah. Um, so over the past couple of years, there's been a very significant uptick in anti-Asian hate crimes um, in correlation with the pandemic, um, with the most notable event, probably one of the most notable events being um, the shooting at the spa in Atlanta, where the shooter was specifically targeting Asian women. Um, and after that happened, I feel like that was something of a tipping point for just the cultural conversation about racism against Asian people, which tends to take a back seat, I think. And one of the things that some people started doing <laughs> is messaging and texting um, really any asian person that they even kind of peripherally know to be like thinking about you sorry about the racism which was very well intentioned but is a bizarre thing to be texted by someone that you don't really have a close relationship with it's a weird thing to open up your dms and see people be like thinking about you because of this really horrific event that happened um Especially when, yeah, I don't, if you don't have any kind of relationship with that person that just feels kind of inappropriate, regardless of how well intentioned it is. Um, So my gut reaction to those messages was like, what is this? This is strange. And then my reaction to my reaction was, well, I understand what they're trying to do. Everyone feels very helpless. And people want to make sure everyone knows that they are a safe space, that they are somebody that is paying attention to what's going on. Um, and while I was having that back and forth with myself in my head and out loud with my sister, we were both trying to figure out, like, why does that not feel genuine? Why does it not feel actually helpful, even though truly the intent of that is pure? I don't fault any of the people that specifically messaged me. It's not like I'm sitting here keeping a list of names. <laughs> but yeah, it made me think about just the performance of niceness and how we think about ourselves being good people and what we expect ourselves to do in order to be seen as good people and to feel like we're good people. Um, Yeah. And so when that started happening, it kind of opened up a bigger conversation for me to think about goodness and niceness as a whole.
2: Amazing. Um, So You give this example in the book of how, in a room full of people, you're the one that a stranger will ask to watch their stuff while they go to the bathroom, which I thought was such a perfect kind of example to showcase um, some of the questions of the book. The heart of that observation is about perception. You found that you are perceived as good, kind, responsible. What you go on to struggle with then is that who you truly are doesn't always match the way you are perceived by other people. That brings up questions of microaggressions, racism, sexism, ageism, and all of the failings of our impulse to stereotype when we perceive. What role does perception play in what we think of as goodness and niceness?
1: I think that the perception of goodness and actual goodness are kind of one and the same. I think the way we think of somebody else as good is completely tied to all of the other aspects of their identity. Um, I think I read, I, I oscillate between reading as like very approachable, like overly approachable. And like, if someone looks at me, I'll set them on fire as like a complete overcorrection from that. And I think that trying to measure goodness and niceness is difficult if you aren't I, the thing that I struggle with is trying to figure out how to measure my own niceness and goodness, if not through the perception of other people, which is something that I truly don't have an answer for, but I try and explore in the book a little bit. Um, it's something that I talk a lot. I talk about a lot with my husband, Riley, with my sister, Anna. Um, we're, we feel like we're doing things that a good person would do, but are we just doing them because they are the things that good people do if the... If the, <laughs> if like, ultimately the thing you're doing is good, but I don't know, just trying to figure out the motivation behind the things that we do. Um, and even in questioning these things in myself, I know that I am constantly judging other people. I have a gut reaction to like, I see someone and immediately in my head, I'm thinking, oh, are they seem like a nice person. They don't seem like a nice person. Obviously, then I'm like questioning why I think those things. But I think we all like have a an instinct to just like immediately categorize somebody as good or bad. And the reason we're doing all of that is based on a lot of like historical things tied to identity. Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. Do you think um, and this kind of follows onto that, do you think that we perform niceness in the world so it's not to be seen for who we truly are.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm doing that constantly. I think the idea that the idea that we aren't all performing constantly, I think that's a lie. I think we all have the need to perform in person, online, just the way that we are presenting ourselves to everyone, I think is some form of a performance. And I don't know anybody who doesn't want to be seen as a good person and and doesn't want to be seen as like a nice, like kind person. And so in order to be seen as those things, you need to do the things that you think people will then be like, oh, well, you did this nice thing. So then you must be a nice person.
2: I want to talk about your writing because it's so special and unique and um, and I think. You have kind of a signature approach now, book two. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes many different forms. That's that's what I would call your kind of signature approach to analyzing a topic. Some examples from She's Nice, though, include you filling out a questionnaire purported to make a stranger fall in love with you, you impersonating an overly helpful waiter, you dissecting the word shy, and even creating a new children's book character called Little Miss Shithead. (laughs) How did playing with form and character and structure help you get to the root of your questions about niceness and goodness and performance?
1: yeah i think when you are addressing topics as heavy as what is good and what is bad and are we good people it becomes kind of exhausting to do that if you aren't doing at least for me it is exhausting to try and analyze really heavy things if i don't do it with a sense of levity and um with pieces that are like fictional and like where the form itself is kind of silly and ridiculous, I think that is an easy way in to talk about really difficult things. Um, It gives people a framework for thinking about these like bigger, heavier topics in a way that doesn't just doesn't feel exhausting. I feel like a lot of conversations about a lot of things are very tiring right now. And it's important that we're talking about big, heavy things, but like mentally and physically and emotionally, we can't be doing that kind of like gut-wrenching, like, oh, let's share our trauma with each other all the time. So I think using different forms, specifically like satire and like funny lists and like monologues, that for me is a much more fun way to talk about things that I'm excited. Well, excited feels like a weird thing to say, but using using those different kinds of forms is an easier way for me to talk about things that I think are important to be talking about and also give space to like make fun of them in a like gentle way and point out the things that are ridiculous about them um, without it feeling like tonally out of place.
2: Yeah. Does that come to you naturally, Mia? Do you sit down to write and just find yourself adopting a kind of character or persona or uh, finding a clever new way in? Um, Or is that something you really think long and hard about before you come to the page?
1: Um, Yes and no. I think there are certain times where some, like, I'm trying to think of an example from the book, like the the piece that I wrote where it's like an overly friendly waiter trying to help somebody. Um, the piece is called, If You Need Anything, My Name is Mia. Um, that came very easily just starting with that initial line and kind of thinking of like, okay, what is the most like absurd over the top way that people in the service industry are like overly, like just like self-sacrificial. <laughs> and the that expectation that we have of people in any kind of role like serving role um so certain topics and certain pieces kind of come naturally i would say the majority i start with either a specific question or like a general topic where i'm like okay well i know i want to talk about uh the like little miss and little mr things how can i do that in a way that's interesting and something like that, a parody feels like an appropriate way to do that. Yeah. I wish that they all came super easy, that I just like <laughs> sat down, cranked it out in an hour. Yes. <laughs> First draft is perfect, but no, it's, I mean, it's a mix of both the things that I feel most excited about. They, there's always like a, a part of that, like that writing process where I'm like, oh, okay, this makes sense. This feels easy. What, if a piece starts to feel like too much work for me to even read. Like if I'm writing something and I'm reading it and like, I am not enjoying reading this piece, then I kind of pump the brakes and I'm like, well, if I don't want to read it, I don't want to make anyone else read it. So.
2: (laughs) Yes. Um, Okay. So I have, my next question is about um, one of my favorite essays. In one essay, you tell the story of how When you were a kid, you wrote Santa with a request (laughs) that two boys in your class like you back only to realize with horror a year later that Santa was your parents. In the conclusion of that essay, you write this line that is just such a standout from the book. You say, I wish I could whisper to eight-year-old me the secret it's taken me too long to learn. You get to be a whole entire person independent from who does or does not like you. It made me think as I was reading that back and preparing for today It made me wonder if the root of all of these questions about goodness, niceness, politeness, and the performance of all those things, if they all kind of point back to a kind of insecurity we have as humans and a desperation to be within the collective um, or to be accepted. What did you mean by that line? And do you agree with that statement?
1: Um, I think the way that you explained it is exactly what I intended for it, which is, Something that I still struggle with, something that I've struggled with my whole life. And, like you said, i I'm hoping and assuming it is not I am not the only person in the world that doesn't know how to fully like themselves unless there are other people validating. Um, i <laughs> I talked to my therapist about this a lot. Um, yeah, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life trying to decide whether I am good and whether I like myself solely based on the people around me and how they look at me and what they think about me. Um, And what I realized with weird, but normal, the first book is that that is that sort of insecurity is a feeling that a lot of people have. Um, But in this book, I think I was kind of trying to figure out, well, why, why, if we all feel this way, then why, why are we asking other people to evaluate us when we know that like, why are we evaluating other people by these standards if we don't want to be evaluated by them? And also, like, why do we why is this not a thing that we can generate internally? And maybe we is too much of an overstatement because I'm sure because my husband is a golden retriever of a man and wakes up feeling good about himself, goes mm-hmm. to bed feeling good about himself. So maybe this is a a me thing, but no, it's a me
2: thing. <laughs> I think it's us thing. Yeah. It
1: yeah, I don't, I don't know that that sentence. (laughs) That idea of like, I, I'm an entire person without the thoughts and opinions of the people around me is sort of the thesis statement of the book. And, and unlike a good essay that answers a thesis, I think I I just ruminated and ruminate on it more, which honestly asking more questions in response to a question is usually how I come to some sort of conclusion.
2: it's so satisfying um, to go through all those questions with you though in the book um, so i'm glad that you that you asked all of them um okay next question and i think this is a good time uh to go this route and one of my favorite essays in the book you reckon with being a self-proclaimed nice girl and you seem disappointed with that title and are desperate for some bad bitch energy in your life Why do you think we've come to celebrate the bad bitch in 2022 and what does she embody for us?
1: I also, this is not to say that I don't appreciate fellow nice girls out there because it it, like I'm not, it's not a self-hating, like, I don't want to be nice. I mean, it's a little bit. I don't want to be nice. I wish people looked at me and was like, oh, I'm a little scared of her. There's something kind of fun and being intimidating to people. There's a power in that. Um, But I feel like this cultural obsession with being a bad bitch kind of comes in tandem with um, a greater importance on uh, self care and self acceptance, like, and how those two things are kind of tied to each other, and also body positivity. And yeah, I feel like all of those things kind of. Like this idea of like if you can I don't know if you're taking care of yourself if you like yourself then it kind of doesn't matter what anybody else thinks and that seems to kind of embody what what I think the bad bitch is supposed to be I'm taking a very David Attenborough approach to it because <laughs> I do not fall in that category um yeah I mean I get the like I talk about in the book I get the appeal of wanting to be seen as like bad in a bad in a good way bad in like a bad in a way that is like independent and confident and mostly unconcerned with the opinion of other people. Um, I feel like that is essential to the bad bitch. And I don't have that. So (laughs) the confidence of the bad bitch seems like a balance to the complete insecurity of the quote unquote, nice girl who needs other people to see them as nice. And I'm seeing them, them meaning me, I need other people to see me as nice and I don't think a, a bad bitch is concerned with being seen as nice.
2: Yeah, I think <laughs> the bad bitch is kind of an answer to the question that you brought up earlier about, um, can we be who we truly are without people perceiving us being that way? Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved that essay so much because, um, yeah, I think a celebration of the the things that, it almost recalibrated the idea of a bad bitch as actually more of just like an honest self-loving person um, and i i just loved that new definition so you admit in the book that there is no place where this line between nice and mean is more confusing than on the internet in one essay you take on the highs and lows of youtube which can be this kind of endless powerpoint presentation of fake living where you can find performative realness on the screen and then anonymous cruelty in the comments section what is at the root of our obsession with fake realities Specifically, you talk about trash, reality television, mukbangs, ASMR. And then as a follow-up, tell us about Astronaut.io. <laughs> and is it an antidote to the fakeness or more of the same?
1: Um, I don't know if I know exactly why we are all so obsessed with the way other people are living. I think, I think we're all a little bit self-obsessed. I think the watching other people do what we perceive to be like normal parts of life um, is sort of a reflection of how we all are. And so what, like getting to be outside of your, like yourself for a second and watch someone else, like go to target and then run through all the things that they got at target feels like, Oh, maybe my life is interesting enough for other people to pay attention to our obsession with those kinds of like with reality TV, with things like vlogs is very much tied to the performance of the self, like performing, like, oh, I'm going to do this very regular thing, but it's, I'm going to make it pretty. I'm going to make it interesting. I'm going to make it condensed and like grabby.
2: Even ASMR is like on YouTube, even though we gravitate toward it. And even if it's the, you know, if it's sounds of nature, it's still happening in a fake Mm. realm or in a fake reality. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to hear more about that kind of the performative realness, um, and your, your take on that and why astronaut.io, which is something that you say you, um, you would love to watch on a loop is, is the thing you would gravitate toward the most, um, why that's the case.
1: Mm. So things like ASMR videos feel like kind of sanctuary within the space of YouTube and the internet as a whole just because the whole point of ASMR is to be quiet and to be gentle and it's very like one-on-one personalized attention which truly nothing else on the internet is quiet and gentle and personalized. Everything is very like loud and grabby and I think part of my obsession with those kinds of videos is how strange they feel in the context of everything else going on um also it just i get the, i like the little scratchy sounds <laughs> it feels good to listen yeah. to um, but yeah i i do think it's interesting how the kinds of videos that are most popular within like the asmr very quiet personalized attention realm feel very feminine or usually women um usually women taking on some role of like the caretaker um, i it's it's strange to feel like this like sanctuary online is also kind of a reflection of the parts of culture as a whole that are pretty messed up but in this like small in this small space it feels okay um um yeah yeah i mean i think kind of like i was saying the everything online is very performed i don't think it's possible to engage or post anything without it I mean you're hoping for an audience I don't think anybody goes online hoping like I hope nobody looks at me today I hope (laughs) nobody reads my thoughts um yeah so it's it's strange to try and it's strange to watch something like um a mukbang where someone is eating just literally eating food it's strange to watch that with the knowledge that they were sitting and planning, like, what is the most content, like, what is the most engaging kind of food content that I can create? What's the most interesting fast food restaurant that I can go get food from and then eat in front of people. Like, it just is such a, it feels like an alien coming to earth and being like, how do I pretend to be human? How do I perform being human? Which, is I mean I honestly that's kind of why I like it I like this like by by somebody like performing humanity it seems like very alien and very strange, um, which the one of the reasons that I like astronaut.io which unfortunately I don't think exists anymore I think it no! is yeah I know I think you might be able to like find it through a web archive thing, but when it existed astronaut.io was this constant stream of random youtube videos that had no views like truly zero views maybe if you clicked on them they would have a couple more like after the after the fact but like um yeah things that people had uploaded either for like a school project or they were i don't know just documenting something interesting that they did that day um It yeah, it would cycle through, it cycles through all these videos that don't have any views, which is such a bizarre. It's bizarre that that exists just because why are you uploading something if not for people to see it? Um, and yeah, there's something very weird about that being both very public and very intimate, like to see something that exists for everyone to see, but you are the only person that has seen it is. again, feels like the antithesis to the internet and feels like this weird little sanctuary of like quiet and intimacy, even though the other person has no idea that now I've seen their English presentation from eighth grade. (laughs) Um,
2: Okay, so how do you decide on the order of an essay collection? I know we talked about this a little bit um, as we were editing. And a follow up question Do you always read an essay collection chronologically or do you like to skip around? You can be honest with me. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Um, Oh, I definitely skip around. I also, I'm the person that reads the last page of a book before I. Oh, no. (laughs) Yep. That's me. I do it. And I have no shame and I will continue doing it regardless of what people tell me. Um, But yeah, no, I definitely jump around in an essay collection, which is what I like about reading those kinds of collections and also writing them is, there is a sort of chronology to them, but also the idea is that you could pick it up at any point in the book and kind of get a sense of like where we are, who this is, without like a bunch of preface to it. As far as trying to figure out how to order an essay collection, um, it's tricky. I tend to, when I am writing, when I wrote this book, I tried to like group my own like I tried to I wrote I kind of wrote the book in order that it appears with some stuff moved around because things moved around but um just so that I got the experience of like okay well if we're starting here like what like what do I want people to know right off the bat what is what is necessary context for people to know right off the bat and then from there, like what are the general things that I want to talk about? Obviously, like niceness and goodness and but like what are the like categories within that? And as I was like brainstorming ideas for different essays and stories that I knew I wanted to tell, those things kind of just naturally grouped themselves into like things that have to do with pop culture, things that have to do with relationships, things that have to do with um like work or career and yeah, so the way that I kind of chose order was based on grouping things in like little content collections, and then also like a balance of having those personal essays and satirical pieces. Um, I wanted each little section to feel like a balance, just because I know I get kind of overwhelmed and exhausted reading one kind of thing over and over again, and so I didn't want. I want if people didn't like my idea was well, if you didn't like that essay, maybe you'll like a funny list. So. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and it turned out beautifully. There's so much balance to the collection and to the order that you chose and the groupings that you chose. Um, I think readers are going to be really happy, even if they're skipper arounders. um, If you do read start to finish, you will be, I think, very um, happy that you did so. Okay, last question. Uh, Because this is a podcast for libraries, I was hoping you, Mia, might tell me your earliest memory of a library or some of your earliest library memories.
1: Yeah. I have two. The first one, I think I was like seven or eight. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I remember standing in line. I don't remember what book I was holding um, and standing behind a girl who was probably like 10 years older than me. So she would have been like maybe 16, 17. Um, She also could have been anywhere between the ages of 12 and like 36. I think anyone that was, it was like there are people that are my age, there are people that are one year older, and then everyone else is an adult and they're all the same. Um, Anyway, standing behind this, girl woman and i felt like she looked a lot like me which was a rarity cuz i did not grow up around a lot of asian people that i was not directly related to um and so i just i remember standing behind her and looking at just like how she was holding herself and she like looked so cool and like checking out a book by herself which i was also doing but i i don't know it's funny that i was watching this person feeling like Oh, that's what, like, if I look like that when I'm older, if I act like that when I'm older, I would be really cool. And I was kind of already, like, I was already trying to, like, mirror that as a little kid. But, yeah, so I remember uh, meeting myself from the future. (laughs) Um, And then the other thing that I remember about, like, one of my earliest library memories is um, I remember going to this event that was... Um, where someone from the zoo or some kind of like animal sanctuary brought in exotic animals for people to like for the kids to see and I got to feed a banana to a porcupine and neither of those stories have anything to do with books but they took place in the library which is important
0: (laughs) we love a library yeah I'm just gonna jump in to say that I think that that is great because it pinpoints how much a library does for the community. That's not just about books. Like it is a community space. And that is really cool that you had those experiences of that's like a formative memory in the mm-hmm. library. So I think that's a lovely library story.
1: Yeah. Tagline for libraries, get a book and feed a porcupine, maybe. Yay. <laughs> okay. Well, that seems like the right place to end.
2: Again, the on-sale date for She's Nice though is August 30th. Librarians, go ahead and download the eGalley now. And a special shout out to Mia Mercado for being here with us
0: today. Thank you. Yay. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Lovefest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. See you next week.